hi, and welcome back to The K-Hole. I'm Mary Kay, and joining me this week is uh, Fanbyte's news editor, a former game informer, editor, former uh, kind of funny uh, games uh, host, Emran Khan. I always like that description because, like, it makes me sound like I'm only, like, if people don't know what kind of funny it is, it makes me sound like I'm uh-huh. only just sort of funny and not actually, like, really funny, Well, sets no. up expectations yeah. well. Well, but see, formerly you were a kind of funny host. Now you yes. are an extremely funny guest. <laughs> I, I, that adds no pressure. Thank you. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, <laughs> It's a rainy Thursday in March. It's that, as someone who lives in San Francisco, I can't in any way relate. No, no. Like, the rainy Thursday is like the one-year event in December that, oh, we'll actually get some rain, and then every other, it's like, it's cloudy, but nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Now, are you uh, from San Francisco, or did you move there? No, I was born in Tennessee. Uh, Wow. I I moved here a couple of years ago a couple of five six years ago at this point uh because i wanted to do video game journalism and this seemed like the place to do it which is a terrible idea it worked out it worked out well but it's a bad i would not suggest anyone move to san francisco thinking oh yeah i'll make it there you probably won't well it's it's not a good city to to assume things will work out no it's really not i mean i've spent some time there and um Mm. it was actually looking like for for a while there, it was looking like I might have to move to San Francisco, and that thought was terrifying to me. <laughs> it's it's I, you know that thing where people are allowed to make fun of the place they live, but no one else is. Absolutely, that's true. That's truer in San Francisco than I've ever seen it anywhere else. Okay, where like everyone who lives here is like, this place is hell. This is a dystopia. But like the second anyone else goes like, yeah, San Francisco sucks. I'm like, hold on a second. No, you can't say that. (laughs) It's stolen valor. Yeah. Uh, You have to live through it. You have to live through this. Speak it. Yeah. Now, uh, so you've been in the biz, as they say, for some time as I understand it. Right. Yeah. I, I think I started this whole, like, what if I became a games editor thing when I was 17? So I, I was saying it was 17 years ago and I just realized I've aged since I started saying that. So so like 18 years ago, half of your life. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. I remember showing my teachers in high school, like, Hey, I've been published and them not caring enough are not caring enough for my preferences. So you were published yeah. in high school, uh, in like a dinky little Atlanta magazine that was, as far as I know, only given away to drunk club goers for free. So I don't know that anyone ever read it. I'm sure it was used as a coaster more often. Listen, than it, was <laughs> it still counts. It print is print. You know what? It doesn't matter if it's Amtrak or if it's, uh, the, the in-flight magazine or if it's, a uh, a flyer in a, a club bathroom. It's still in print. Yeah. No, I don't tell anyone that nobody read it. I just be like, yeah, no, I was published in this magazine. I've been writing since I was 17, like, which is true. Just not the audience number is probably lower than I also tell people. Well, yeah, you don't need to 
you don't need to tell the whole story, right? Yeah, no. Um, and they're not going to do the research, so. Yeah. So I would try to do some research, actually, before this podcast, because um, to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, you have been here at Fanbyte for, God, I couldn't say, because it, I wanna say, I, it feels like six months because you've just so seamlessly kind of settled in. Um, mm. It's been, how long has it actually been? A few months? Uh, it's been one month, I think, it's as of one two month? days ago. Yeah. I think maybe it's just because I knew that you were heading over here earlier, that I was sort of like, had already mentally created a space that you would occupy. Um, yeah, but, no, game journalism time is also like, you know, not like normal human time. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, it is it is funny um, that because uh, we actually, so another show on this the fanbite podcast network 99 potions did a review of a game called 13 sentinels uh this week and that game came out last year and um i i by all um you know everything i've heard said it it was interesting and it was it was cool and i'm, I'm glad that we have that review and it also struck me when i saw that come up like hold on <laughs> that came out last year <laughs> um this is like a, a books thing or like an academic thing where you talk about things that came out more than a month ago. Uh, we don't do that so much here in video games. Yeah, no, it's video games. Like it's an, it's a medium and an industry in, extremely driven by FOMO. And mm. the, the idea is if you miss something, then you are in some way deficient because everyone else got to talk about it in a way you didn't. And you can't really go back to it because the the community has moved on. Like I've been watching you play Dark Souls, and like Dark Souls is so community based that if you talk to somebody about it, like the community is somewhat welcoming. But if you talk about it now, it's like, oh yeah, Dark Souls too. I played that years ago. Like I don't really think about that game much anymore. Well, if you if I talk to someone today and said, oh yeah, I'm gonna watch, I'm trying to think of a non comic book movie. <laughs> Uh, if I watch, I don't know why this is in my head, but serendipity now, no one's going to be like, Oh, you're just now watching serendipity. People will be like, why are you watching serendipity at all? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there is this tendency to always compare to other forms in games. There's sort of like, and I'm familiar with this because my background is in sociology which as a is sort of like this in this weird position in the uh, in academia where sociologists have this chip on their shoulder, a lot of them where they want to be like these established scientific types. And I feel like in the same way, a lot of people in games are like always looking for like, oh, what's our what's you know, like how, how can we achieve the same level of cultural significance and penetration as movies or, or books or anything. And it's like, well, I feel like the disposability of the medium doesn't really help with that at all. Yeah. You know, like um, it has been interesting to go back to Dark Souls uh, because I've been playing through all of them recently and uh, I'm like 10 years behind on those. And um, it's almost like to me, it, the way I look at things is almost like, okay, if it didn't come out, if it, if it didn't come out this year, uh, I'm not going to play it for probably 10 years. 
Um, because if it came out a year ago, then it's in like this weird limbo space, right? Where like it's not old enough to be reevaluated, but it's not new enough to be like uh, in the conversation anymore. Yeah. Because like if it's a year old and you start talking about it, people are, there's no one still actively playing it. And there's no, like, it's also this weird space where the people who are still going to play it someday are not going to play it anytime soon. So like your conversation about it is limited to you. Like it's a community of one and video games like, and they push on that for like actual marketing reasons because they want people to finish the thing and move on and then play the next thing. Yeah. But it like, it is, it feels like such a disposable medium when it really shouldn't. It like a game like 13 Sentinels is just as good today as it was six, seven months ago. But like, like uh, I think a lot of the conversation also comes around to when we think of old games and people get really mad at Nintendo for this, but we think how the, how much cheaper they should be because an old game is uh, that has been on the shelf shouldn't cost as much as a new game. And I don't think I understand the reasoning for that beyond. I just want games cheaper. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I think I see it. Um, you know, in a way, I think I see it. There is like the sense that like, you know, if you want to be a part of the conversation early on, you pay a premium to do that. And, um, otherwise you wait. And then in the long tail, um, people will, cut their prices so that uh you know they can they can exploit that long tail by by making more sales by by cutting the prices but mm-hmm. yeah just i mean i i would settle for things being on the shelves at all sometimes <laughs> or the metaphorical shelves i guess because increasingly so much of this stuff is just data is like not even housed in like plastic and chips anymore well, yeah. it, it is, but it lives on computers. It, it doesn't live in like a little cartridge or or on a floppy disk. There was like a a weird period where like once games started becoming mainstream digital, like they've been digital for a long time, but main like, right. like when Pain came out on PS3, like there was a sense that these games were lesser and more disposable and to some extent that they had like space limits and things like that. But I think over the last 15 years, we've just kind of accepted the fact that, oh, all of video games are just data. These are all the same thing. It's the same picture, like regardless of where it came from. So it, I think I look at that sort of thing, that change in mentality of this is lesser to no, this is just the same thing that completely goes unsaid and be like, well, I guess anything can change. And we'll just, whether we acknowledge it or notice it or not, this industry could look entirely different in like 10 years. Do you think you'll be in the industry in 10 years? I like to hope so. I I like doing this and it's always been baffling to me that people are willing to play or pay me to, you know, do this thing that I really like doing. But like 
I am I am lucky in that people were willing to give me a shot for things I told them I was good at. And whether or not I am good at them, who that's someone else's job to judge. But I I got those shots that a lot of people are just never going to get. And I kind of lucked into a lot of positions like at Game Informer, like at Fanbyte, that like there's there's maybe 500 jobs in this industry for 20,000, 30,000 people who want them. And I always feel like when I think about what my next step is going to be after this, like in 10 years, 15 years, whatever, do it. If, am I going to stay in this thing where it's extremely competitive and if anything like folds up or things like that, will I, you know, go through that time again to try and get back into it or just move on somewhere else? And that is not a question that I have been able to find an answer to in the last couple of years. And a lot of game journalism just kind of feels like flying by the seat of your pants and hoping that someone somewhere is going to give you another shot to, you know, to do what you want to do for a living wage. Yeah. I mean, that really resonates with me. Um, I think it is broadly true of a lot of, uh, a lot of work, uh, Mm -hmm. like now, um, the idea that the idea of having like a really stable vision of like what the future is going to look like is so alien to me. Um, the idea that anyone ever had that is, is bizarre. Uh, like I can't imagine, you know, and this wasn't, you know, to some extent, this is a kind of an illusion or like a myth, like it, it never really existed in the way that people make it out to, but like the idea of like, okay, you, you graduate school, you get a job at a company and you like just sort of rise through the ranks gradually, gradually your whole life. Like that's like, no, that company doesn't exist in three years anymore. <laughs> like that's, mm. that's what happens now. And yeah, I think that sense of instability can really take a toll on people, even if they don't realize it. Yeah. I, when I went to college, I, I went for journalism, like specifically I figured I was going to leave college and then like get a job at like Atlanta journal constitution or CNN. Like I wanted to write about political stuff because at the time that seemed really fun the timing in which I entered the industry, it was not fun anymore. It was like, it was covering a lot of people for whom cynicism is a sport and like trying to talk to people who were so inherently tribalistic in a way that like it took everything I liked about politics and turned it into a gross, uh, like it was like shaking up a snow globe full of shit. Honestly, okay. of like, I can't believe what the, what has happened in the last, and granted from my perspective, it was the last like 15 years, but f- like in actuality, it would, it's probably gone on like since Reagan and before, but like nine 11, drastically changed the world in a lot of ways. And like, as a Brown person living in the South, it drastically changed the world for me as well. And realizing that people came away from that event with a renewed sense of how to weaponize it 
right. and both realist or both like ideological and the literal term weaponize it. Uh, that like turned me off so much that I just kind of said, okay, I, I want to keep writing. I want to just, you know, I, I like doing this. I want to put words on a page, but I can't do it about politics anymore. That, that world and like that career is, it is too far removed from reality at this point. Right. And I had to just like, that is kind of, I've always been writing about video games, but that's when I like decided I'm going to make the move from that to hopefully video games one day, because it's also bad in some other ways, but not in the same way. That's, that's kind of funny actually that you were, you're doing this, uh, stuff in politics and then decided that it had become too far removed from reality and so you started doing game stuff which like a lot of people would say uh you know is is really removed from reality and like is fantastical and is kind of like a um a diversion from reality mm-hmm. uh, but i think increasingly like i, I don't know my sense I, I haven't really been like in the industry um, in in a direct way for a very long time. I've sort of always been on the fringes of it. But my sense recently is that like uh, games and politics are becoming very intertwined in ways that go beyond the kind of obvious like uh, issues of like representation or like violence or whatever. Like I play a lot of Destiny, which is a game that is kind of just about doing sort of similar things over and over again. And to me, like I can see how that game, like even for me as someone who like has a job and like has like, you know, um, a pretty good living situation and stuff. The, the appeal of having these like tasks that I can tick off and then see progress being made and doing that with other people feels like, oh, this is like, um, this is like almost like a substitute for like some other kind of activity. Like this, you know, people might uh, go to church and have like a community group that they they do things with, or like you know have a job where like they they can see themselves really climbing up. And I can see how a lot of games have sort of stepped into the space. And to me, that really explains the appeal of like of live games and like the MMOification of games recently of just people want something that they can sink things into because their lives and their work and like the political realities of the world feel so meaningless to them. There's a large extent to which video games are a an interactive way in which you can feel in control of our lives. Mm. Like a skill tree, a real life skill tree would be great. If I could just say, hey, these are the things I want to be good at in my life without actually extending the energy to actually be good at them, that would be fantastic. But the like it's a verifiable industry trend that when like things are worse in the world, video game sales go up. And that's one of the things that is also weirdly cynical about this industry is 
you look at Animal Crossing, which is a very wholesome, right. very nice video game, but then you also look at the sales and be like, that that's selling so well because the world is on fire. And I I know like companies don't want to, you know, crow about the fact that this game's doing real well because of COVID or whatever, but at some point we also have to draw this line between the fact that people's lives aren't going great to video game sales are up. What does that mean for like a hyper capitalistic industry that will open openly brag about CEO bonuses when people are getting laid off and things like that? Like at what point do they make the realization of we need to get games out faster while things are bad? Mm. Like we need to produce more things to distract people from their terrible lives and not just have like it in the discussion of our games art or are they capitalistic pieces? There's, there's definitely like room for, for that answer to be both, but it also like shifts and trends with different like periods of the world. And in the last like five years, I would say we've definitely been trending towards the fact that no, no games are products. They're not, they're only art when we want to market them as art which right like eliminates that as an answer right we we have um we need to have this like this pipeline of um these like acclaimed intellectual or like thoughtful games and as long as we have like a couple of those a year then we can we can point to them and be like look um look like these these, and not to say, you know, I'm not disparaging people who make those games or those games themselves. I'm just saying I think they serve a function for the broader industry, which is to be able to say, like, look, games are art. They have emotional depth and meaning and resonance. Um, anyway, now that you've, like, <laughs> played that for, for two hours, you can go back to, uh, you know, Destiny or Warframe or whatever. <laughs> which isn't to say that those games don't have those things either. And... I think that people make a mistake when they brush online games off as just being like pointless sinks of time because you are doing things with other people. And like, you know, having a sense of accomplishment is valuable, even if it isn't uh, in physical reality. But I do yeah. always, you know, it's always like a complicated mixed feeling, right? Of like when I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've upgraded my guy in Destiny. I have like all these cool um cosmetics and like cool cool gear and stuff and then i'm like you know i'll sit back and just be like what am i doing <laughs> like i guess this well, is a, fine but it's an interesting thing of uh, again this i don't know if this is from the last couple of decades or i've just only been alive the last couple of decades sure but i as increasingly in like leftist circles and like leftist introspection you start thinking about the fact that there's almost nothing we can do that doesn't feel in some way corporatized and mm-hmm. like video games suffer from that more because like to make, to make a kind like what the expectations are for a good video game almost inherently correlate one-to-one with money. Sure. And like, there's obviously there are those indie game exceptions and, but yeah, like they don't get the same play and they rarely get the same coverage. And they're, yeah, they're but, always exceptions, right? They're always like the, the surprise story of like these two people who made this huge thing. Right. And 
I think like that also translates to, you know, movies and TV shows and people talk about, Oh, the episodic TV show is back. And like, yeah, but it's from Marvel. Like it's great that it's back. It's good that that show is like, people like it and it's good or well-written or what have you, but no one else is going to have the money to spend to make a show like that. And I think we tend to in all media, except I guess literature, but that's also another whole can of worms to correlate quality with money and that money with corporatization. So like I, I love Marvel. I love comic book movies. I fully realize when I'm going into a comic book movie, I'm also willingly exposing myself to a lot of like, us dod propaganda and things like sure, that sure and the the people who are delivering this movie to me are probably also terrible in you know financially ethical ways so it's something i think about a lot when writing about video games is how do we get to the the argument between or beneath the corporate level but like also accepting the fact that people enjoy these things and like right. I enjoy these things too. Sure. And like when I talk about how the head of Activision is, you know, corporate siphon who's getting 200 billion or $200 million in bonuses. I don't want to also say that people who play these games are bad, but there's, there's so much nuance that needs to go into that conversation of you can enjoy Call of Duty, but let's also recognize it is U.S. war propaganda. Let's also recognize the company that puts it out does some really ethically dodgy things. Sure, yeah. And I think video games especially have that problem of when you want to talk about the complicated nuance parts of it, the people who just like the game see any attack as a holistic attack, and it makes the conversation impossible. One thing I see people saying sometimes is, you know, when you have these these huge tentpole releases come out and, uh, you know, people I think rightfully get upset at how they sort of uh, take up all of the oxygen in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they People will sometimes go to this, this view of like, well, these things are only popular because... Uh, because of the money behind them, because people are talking about them. And there's something to that, but I think that also is like an extremely cynical view of of humanity, of people, to say, oh, no, like people only like whatever is put in front of them with money behind it. Um, because I don't think that takes seriously like why people enjoy those things. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think it's it's important to recognize that that you know, the fact of marketing and everything, but like to just, to just kind of dismiss it as, oh, people only like cyberpunk because it's, it has a huge marketing campaign. It's like, well, no, there's something there. People, there's something about having like an immersive world where you are the protagonist that, you know, there's very obvious reasons why people would want something like that. And like, if you're not going to take that seriously, then how can you possibly understand like what makes 
this popular or like how can you possibly present an alternative that's going to compel people yeah it's it's a lot of feeling like the money feeds into the machine but that's not necessarily what outputs from the machine and i i definitely think there is like a the game awards last year had a best performance award I think one of the things that's wrong with that award, specifically that one, is that we tend to correlate the best performance to the most expensive one as well, because you do have the ability to create uh, a much more believable performance in The Last of Us than you do in other games. So it's not that the performance is bad, it's that what we assign, because it's a technologically driven medium, we assign so much of what quality is to our ability to relate to it, which tends to be the more expensive methods. Right. And I think those, it's not a thing that video games never shake off. It's not a thing that we can change. We can only change our own mindsets about it. But it's it's not, a, like Naughty Dog does nothing wrong by making their game more expensive and more like more realistic. It's just that you look at it and like there's there's an inherent inequality here that, can't be fixed easily. And like I I've like I said, I've been in this industry for more than half my life at this point. It's it is something that I've thought about that I don't ever see a possible solution to beyond just let's re- like be aware of how we how our personal preferences and biases look at these things and try and have a like more open tent for more experiences, which is again not simple it is it requires a massive both cultural and like honestly preferential change and this is something that has developed over time as well and that is i think something that's easy to lose sight of because if you go back 20 years and you look at what development was like uh the size of the teams working on Games that are still acclaimed as, you know, these these uh, gorgeous classics like Zelda games, um, you know, like uh, Sonic, like or early PC games, even those are being developed by like a handful of people, and the the gap between the you know the the marketable product that's on a, a store shelf at KB Toys or KB Games or whatever um, versus like the homebrew scene at that time is pretty small, but that gap has widened so much because there are these expectations now that like, okay, here is what a, a 60 or I guess now $70 video game looks like is it has you know, 3D graphics. It has high definition uh, audio and visuals. It has um, some kind of online capabilities. And to do all those things, like you you need a huge team. Like you just have to have a ton of people because the amount of hours of like labor it takes to produce something like that is enormous. And it didn't always used to be that way we've just sort of come to accept that like, this is what this thing looks like. And I do kind of wonder sometimes if there will come a point where it's just not, you know, it just doesn't work anymore. The system just breaks down. Like 
I feel like in the past few years, there has been this conversation of like, oh, are these big single player experiences dying out just because they don't make enough money anymore? Um, and then there has been the thing of like, oh, our game is just going to become live services. And we've seen so many people try to recreate something like a Destiny and just fail over and over again. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, like at some point I wonder like, okay, well, maybe will will people just try to find ways of making games for cheaper and will that involve smaller teams and less extravagant productions? I think... Like it, it's interesting watching the bubble grow because it's a bubble. It is going to just keep growing until one day it will just burst. And the video game industry is just scaling up to get bigger and bigger and bigger and produce like there was at this point it'd be about 15 years ago, but like the death of the double A game was like a really big hit for the industry. And it's sort of slowly coming back now, but in like kind of weird and not entirely pure ways of like a THQ could not survive today. They could not be making the same kind of games they were making in 2005, 2006, but a THQ Nordic, which has billions and billions of dollars and is scooping up every like studio. I think they're at like 54 now, like under the sun that can survive because it is a, double a company kind of play it's prince and poppering it is play acting at being a double or a it's a very rich company play acting at being a double a company and i think that's kind of where we're ending up of people you have the choice of doing the triple a thing that if that hits off that like if you can make your own destiny you're going to make a ton of money or you can end up with your marvel's avengers and just not and I think there are going to be developers in, who are large monoliths unto themselves start going, okay, we could try that and it's going to cost us a lot of money to, if we fail or we could you know, do the smaller things and hope that works out. But the, the old days of the smaller company doing the smaller things, I think that's more or less over. I think indie has gotten bigger to kind of like subsume that aspect of it. Right. But for the most part, it is still AAA and indie. Just the two are meeting closer together just because the games themselves are getting big enough to warrant that. It's not that there, there are now multiple tiers of companies. It's just, it, it mimics a little bit actual, like American class categorization in terms of the fact that there's very little middle class anymore. And I think that's, that's probably not coincidence. It's probably just like how these things when given an unrestricted capitalist market, how they tend to grow together over time and squeeze out the middle. Sure. But I think, I think it's unsustainable in terms of class. I think it's unsustainable in terms of the video game industry. Just a question of like, when will the bubble burst? And when it does, it's going to probably catch a lot of people by surprise. Right. Right. Yeah. We're going to have, you know, uh, well, I guess we probably won't have a landfill full of, uh, you know, Avengers uh, cartridges because that's not really a thing anymore. But, uh, I mean, it happened once. It happened once. People forget this sometimes. But, like, there was a time when people 
thought that, oh, the video game craze is over um, because the entire market just completely crashed. Uh, and it, it could happen again. Like it's it's not, you know, it's not a given that uh, that things will just continue to expand uh, forever. I don't think it'll crash. I think what will happen is it will become unsustainable to actually produce video games. Okay. And that is like the audience will be there. Like, yeah. I think if anything pushes it, COVID will. Sure. And the fact that like last year there were fewer video games than there usually are. That's not including like the, the five visual novels that come out on Steam every day or right, whatever. Right. Like, but in the AAA, AA space, the, there were a couple of big hits, but by and large, there were fewer games. And there will be fewer games this year and fewer games the year after because COVID is going to hit a lot of these things very hard. But it like that is, I think, what a modern video game crash would look like is we need to get ga- more games out, but we like either the quality is suffering or we just can't. And the audience will still be there. The audience will still want to buy games. They will still buy the Animal Crossing release for thir- 30 million units and then not really care that nothing else is coming out on Switch for the rest of the year. Right. But they, I think a modern crash will be a, a big inversion of what it was before. And that won't kill the industry because there's just too much money in it, but it's going to have to drastically shape how we make, release, and market games, which is, it's going to, inv- there was a time years and years ago where the marketing of games involved flying people like me out to the desert to shoot yeah. chain guns. Right. And Wait, did that you do crashed, that? Uh, I don't think I, no, I never went to the chain gun one. I went to a, a helicopter ride and I went to, when I was in Vegas uh, for something that I do not remember, one of the PR people was like, hey, do you want to go shoot AK-47s at a, like a thing nearby? Yes. I was like, no, it's midnight. So I, I don't think I'm going to want to do that. But like that sort of thing was very common at a time. Those things change. And when I, we tell people those stories now of what it used to be like, they think like, well, why it's, it's so different now. Now we just get like, sandwiches somewhere and even nowadays we just get PR emails like right it's things change and again like it's those kind of gradual changes that really push or that we really don't notice but when you think back at them like okay these things are a lot different than they used to be and I think that's how the video game industry will eventually start evolving might not be the right word but start adjusting to new realities there it's going to be very hard after in a post COVID world of convincing people. Oh yeah. Come commute every day back to the studio because it's easier for us. If you can just talk to someone behind your desk and not on Slack. And then someone, people are going to be like, "Mm, it may be easier for you, but it's not easier for me. So the industry is going to like adjust and change and like morph in those ways too. There will probably be like other external factors over time that also start doing those same adaptations are forcing those adaptations on us. When people tell stories like that of like 
Oh yeah, they used to send us these puzzle boxes or fly us out somewhere to meet the Master Chief. Um, <laughs> to me, it's like the modern version of like how literary magazines used to just pay Hemingway to fuck off to Europe for six months and just like maybe write an article while he's there. Uh, it's just wild to hear about. And I think to some extent that stuff still does happen a little bit, but it's uh, more for uh, influencers now than it is yeah. for like the traditional press, which uh, is just another change in how this stuff is marketed and, and presented to people. But I remember watching an influencer's, influencer's video, like a preview, I think, for an Assassin's Creed game. And they were talking about how while they were playing the game, they were saying something like, no, Ubisoft didn't do anything for me. They didn't pay me off for this preview. This is entirely me. All they did was fly me to Rome and pay for my meals. And like, you could feel like this dawning realization <laughs> as like, oh, wait, actually, this is a really big deal. I am not as unbiased as I think, which is like, I, I like seeing that realization in real time because we all go through that at some point. Sure, yeah. I have my own like thoughts and feelings about this that were colored in some way. And the best thing I can do is be aware of that and try not to let it actually influence my work. But it's, it's impossible to not, it's impossible to not be influenced on the superficial level. It's very easy or not very easy. It is, extremely doable to not let that actually influence the work, which is, I think the mistake a lot of people who like criticize this stuff from the outside yeah. make that. Yeah, no, they, they gave me like, they were very accommodating for a lot of things, but most people who do that stuff are professionals, which is why they moved to influencers because they're not professionals. Right. Not, no shade against them, but you eventually have to get used to it and they don't want you to get used to it. They want you to just, you know, experience it. Right. Right. Yeah. Just experience, experience it. All the, the free soup or whatever, <laughs> probably not soup sandwiches. I don't know. Um, Lot, there's slider, sliders are like a mainstay at game journalism events. To the point where I actually just got sick of them. Really? Oh, because they're little small hand things that you can eat. Yeah, and like pretty I don't know if there's like a specific caterer that's like, oh yeah, I work for Nintendo, Ubisoft, all that stuff. But every like, every single event, you will find a slider. And it, it got to the point where I just couldn't eat hamburgers for a long time because I was doing so many events so often that I just got sick of all this wow. like catered food. Maybe it's because there are sliders in video games, like character <laughs> creation sliders. So they're trying to make, it's probably not because of that. Um, I would believe it. I like the, you would be surprised at the number of like, I don't want to, I don't want to be pejorative and say dumb connections, but like the, the connections they make of our game has, I'm trying to think of a hypothetical example to not just immediately give away which company this is, but like, <laughs> Our game has rattlesnakes. So on the on the tin says uh, rattlesnake bacon. It's just regular bacon. But for them, it is like we we wanted to show that we're cute and connected to this game. Right, so maybe right. you'll remember it. And for me, it's just like no. Actually, I'm just kind of rolling my eyes a little bit at this. This is not as cute and clever as you think. It just makes me feel weird about eating the bacon. 
I mean, you know, someone got paid a lot to come up with rattlesnake bacon. I I would hope so. I would hope that they are justifying the hours spent on that like index card in which they marked in Sharpie marker rattlesnake bacon. Just circled, underlined. <laughs> we we stayed up all night, but we finally got there. We finally came up with a million dollar <laughs> idea. Send this to I, Ubisoft. <laughs> Again, not naming which company it was, but yeah. Yeah, no, Ubisoft with two E's, not an I. It's a different company. Yeah, who uh, can say? It's most, they mostly make B-related uh, games. It was uh, a long time where like I could not... I did not know if it was Ubisoft or Ubisoft, and every single person at the company I asked gave me a different answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the point where I asked Yves Guimau, and he's like, oh, it's a, I forget which one he told me, but like, I asked him, and then the person next to him translated it differently than he did. So, it is, it is a confusing company name. I'm glad for them they've made it work. It's a UB, it, Ubisoft, it's just about fingers. It's uh, <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> yeah, what a weird... But it's just like a strange, I don't know. I know people who have been embedded in this world for a long time. And uh, it is just very strange thinking about how it used to be and, and how it's changing. Like, I don't really see people getting flown around the world anymore to do these extravagant things to look at the new product. It is just, you know, we'll send you, uh, maybe we'll send you a code to try yeah. it if you're lucky if we can dig out NF codes for the new video game uh, at the mines, the data mines. If we can Bitcoin out a, a video game code for you. Right. Give N- you your, your NFT. Nintendo's running uh, just a ton of graphics cards all day to just make these demo, uh, these these codes, preview codes for people, and they only have so many. Yeah. They I mean... To- get their non-fungible toads like all that stuff does i you know i I make fun of this stuff sometimes because it is funny to me that you know when pr outlets will be like we only have so many codes and like i guess that does come down from the top it's not you know it's not these pr places trying to create artificial scarcity or a sense of like you know specialness it is generally like you know companies charging to generate uh these codes but like and obviously they're making money, you know, Nintendo or whatever is making money every time they they sell, you know, the right to generate a code or whatever to a company. But like, just because it's digital doesn't mean it doesn't cost money. Like there's like, there's, you know, finance and capital all the way down and all of this stuff. And like, that's really easy for me to forget sometimes is like all of the network infrastructure and, you know, electrical energy and all of this stuff that uh that is used to to generate to to like to to send games to people like when you download a game from steam or or on the the switch store um there's this huge huge web of resources that are playing into that and it's almost easy to forget that they exist you know yeah it's it is all more complicated than the the goal of video game stuff and like marketing and you know pr and all that is to make it all seem like it's way easier than it is right because like you you take like one small peek behind the curtain and it's just like gears all the way down but it's i want it to be more magic than it actually is like as someone who 
does have a better understanding than most of like what these processes are like. I, I forget sometimes maybe purposely of how complicated it is to make a video game, market it, release it, send it to press that, that kind of thing. Because at the end of the day, I try to think of my job as a critic of like, what would I look at it the way that, or not, I look at it. I, I try to have the same circumstance as somebody who just is buying a game off the shelf does. And that is not always simple because I do try to, I do think about those gears when I'm playing a game or criticizing a game or what are writing news about something, which can inform something better. But also you do tend to get like lost a little bit in it. And ultimately I could, if, if I know a game has been rushed, I can have that like as a framework for my criticism, but ultimately it shouldn't really matter if it's still a $60 game that people they're selling. Right. And I think that is like one of the hardest parts about games criticism is how do you separate your, your experience in all facets of the medium from what the actual product is and should you in the first place. And I don't think anyone has like a full consistent answer to that. And I think that we all just take it case by case basis, but it, I always kind of wonder if like, do the people who like review vacuum cleaners have the same problem as we do? (laughs) Or is it like, is it a problem just unique to video games or media or something like that? And one day I'm going to find someone who reviews vacuum cleaners and I'm going to ask them. I mean, I don't think that would be too difficult. I, I think you could head over to, you know, a site like The Wirecutter or something. And uh, I'm sure that they have their own, you know, the vacuum cleaner reviewers of the world have their own internal politics and uh, and struggles over these kinds of questions, too. Yeah, my partner used to write for that site, and she described a very, like, she was reviewing pet fountains, and basically described the situation where she had five or six pet fountains just going on around her house and all of her pets were extremely confused, but delighted. So I, I imagine there's all these other, not pitfalls, but like it is complicated for everyone just in different ways. And I would love, I would love for everyone who does. I want to read everyone's autobiography. And I think that's just like a personal thing of tell me how weird your life is and your yeah. job is because I, I would just want to know because I only have my own experience and I don't know what to measure it against. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's so true. I just the image of five or six pet fountains going off is. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> I just look at things like that. and I'm just like, this is how did we get here? You know, just like looking back at like the long stretch of history and being like, it was all leading up to this point where a website had to tell people which of these five or six probably almost identical electric things that circulate water for their domesticated animals they should purchase through the internet uh, and then have it sent to them. And it's just like, it's the kind of thing that just makes me want to be like, this is too there's too much. We should just return to monkey, you know, just like, yeah, no, we, we've reached the mountaintop and decided the view was too good and how have to go back. We should go like, back down. Yeah. Um, it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I feel sometimes when I think about all of the webs of like production and, and relations involved in like producing 
like a game. It's yes. just like, it's like, can we just go back to when it was like, you know, like 12 guys being like, hey, what if Mario had a raccoon tail? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then they did that because now it's just like, it's it's too much and it's too much to expect any one person to be able to grasp, I feel like. And I really admire the people who do the work of like sort of documenting how this stuff works and not even, I was going to say exposing, but I don't necessarily mean like exposing like, you know, the bad practices or whatever. I just mean like documenting like the flows of all this stuff because it is so big and like transnational and just so complicated. Honestly, I think in a post-COVID world, we're gonna we're gonna look at the Sonic the Hedgehog movie as like one of the more weirder things that ha- actually happened during all this. Because like, if you remember the timeline of that, it was like they showed that that trailer with that weird goblin Sonic, right? And, right. And then we're immediately like, "Oh, we hear you. None of you like this. No we're one going likes to go it. back and fix this." And it became like a a labor discussion at that point of like, "Oh, now th- these people have to like go out there and try and." Like fix this thing that somebody decided on years ago. Then they they had the director had to come out and say, "Oh no, we're we're delaying it. These people are being like paid appropriately. They're being given time to do this, and then they get laid off anyway due to an unrelated thing from their parent company." Right. And that whole that whole thing is just like a morality play on like how strange production is that this this thing that nobody theoretically ever gave that much thought to became a stage show for like labor practice discussion, uh, crunch discussion, like artistic license, all, all these things for a thing that like was an okay movie. I've not thought about it much since then beyond the, the various situations around it. Yeah. It was but, fine. Yeah. Like we have all these things that, what was the Ratatouille line? Like the greatest piece of art is like more important than the critic or whatever. But we have all these things that we don't think about more than once after they exi- like come out and like live their existence and then disappear that probably have were sleepless weeks and months for many other people. And like the only thing some 20 year old in Montreal thought about for like a year. we should just everyone should agree to just not make anything like (laughs) to not make any cultural products for like a year or like 10 years maybe and we just say we're just gonna we're banning doing that we're just going back to we're just gonna look back at you know we've got thousands of years of this stuff already folks let's just pay attention to that for a while Give me a chance to catch up on all those 90s movies I never watched. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, I think that is maybe a good place to wrap up. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, Where can people find you online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at ImranZOMG or on fanbyte.com. 
yeah, it's a, I've heard it's a pretty good website. Yeah, it has its virtues. Yeah, uh, you know, some, some people who work there are pretty cool. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. And um, yeah, the, the show's Twitter account is at K-Hole World. It's not K-Hole, K-Hole Podcast or K-Hole Show. That was a, uh, I believe that's a defunct podcast about the Kardashians. So not, not this one. Um, yeah, go go check that out and uh, Fanbyte Media on Twitter, and uh, I will see you next week. Bye. The K Hole is a fanbyte.com production, hosted by Merritt K and produced by Jordan Mallory. Follow Merritt on Twitter at Merritt K. Follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Mallory. For more information on the video game industry, you can actually go to fanbyte.com slash podcasts or visit podcastnet.work.